Father, we're grateful for the passing of the storm and for the beauty of this day. And we thank you for the wonder of this time of year as the world uh, is revived to life around us in so many different ways. And we thank you that uh, it's a picture to us of the renewal that comes through your grace. And we pray that we would know your spirit at work now among us as we continue our study on these matters of great importance and also uh, significant difficulty. And we pray that our Lord would be honored and we would grow in love for him and for one another as we study together. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, first, the last of the 12 statements we took up at our last session, 10 through 12, uh, language, friendship, repentance, and hope. Any further questions or observations to make on the last of those statements? All right. Um, Then now we're taking up what uh, I'm counting as part two or excuse me, this will be part three of our study. The the, um, preface was part one, the 12 statements, part two, and I'm calling this section part three. It's entitled Confessional Foundations Regarding the Nature of Temptation, Sin, and Repentance. And it's divided into two parts. Uh, The first part is Foundations, and that's 14 to 17, our reading for today. And uh, then next week, the same title, Confessional Foundations Regarding the Nature of Temptation, Sin, and Repentance, but then it'll be Applications. So what we're doing today is um, we're going deeper with respect to several of the statements in the 12 statements in a more narrative fashion Uh, to try and elaborate on. It'll be somewhat uh, a a review for you, but I I hope it won't be tedious. I think that um, it may clarify some of the very terse material we covered earlier and enrich your understanding of these very important subjects. So um, this was part of the assignment given to the uh, committee by the General Assembly. And the first point was, in particular, uh, quoting here from the report, um, the nature of temptation, sin, and repentance, and the difference between Roman Catholic and Reformed views of concupiscence as regards safe sex attraction. And perhaps you'll recall uh, the reason why Uh, This is an important subject. Uh, It is of itself, but in this context, the context of our study, it's important because some of the people who have wanted to argue for a reconsideration of same-sex attraction and the church, some of the people come from a Roman Catholic background. And Uh, that background allows them to conceive of the problem and remedy in a different way than is possible for Reformed people. 
And uh, to some degree, it may be this difference that is at the root of some of the controversies that we're facing. So um, these um, doctrinal categories, temptation, sin, and repentance, uh, they um, are important questions for us to take up. And in this section, they want to briefly review what the Confession of Faith teaches about sin in the Christian life. Um, And they're going to focus in particular on the experience of sin and the application of redemption. uh, They want to ask themselves the question, what does the Bible teach us about our fallen human condition? Um, And what does it mean to be saved from that fallen human condition? How does regeneration affect our fallenness? Uh, And then after they look at these questions in general, they're going to bring it down to application and our experience of sexuality. That'll be uh, for next time. So, confessional foundations. There are three parts to this section. The first part considers what we might call corruption in general. Part two is corruption and the regenerate. And part three is corruption and the goodness of our works. Uh, And I I think this is a very insightful and clearly uh, elaborated uh, portion of the report. And I hope it'll be profitable uh, for us to consider this ground again. So... um, Our confession of faith describes uh, humanity in this age uh, in terms of uh, an all-embracing or comprehensive corruption. The um, uh, confession of faith in chapter 6 and section 2 notes that um, as a result of the fall, we became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. Uh, You'll notice the footnotes, um, especially in the case of uh, a citation from the Confession of Faith, largely the committee has uh, used the proof texts associated with Westminster Standards for the scripture footnotes. So you would see the very things that were thought to lead to those statements as the divines and uh, as later users of the confession of faith thought were uh, grounded in the scripture. Now, um, the the committee urges that um, this statement we just read uh, emphasizes the integrated Uh, and comprehensive nature of our humanity and that corruption strikes at the core of that nature. I like that metaphor better, uh, really, than the language of the confession. When we say wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body, I think that could be misleading. Um, The... um, We remain fearfully and wonderfully made, for example. Uh, Our bodies are effectively um, the uh, bodies that God intended for us to have at creation. Uh, 
they suffer corruption because of the curse, um, and we are, are liable to the miseries of uh, um, disease and so on. But in the main, our um, bodies are not defiled. Um, and I don't think the divines intend to say that. I think they're wanting to say, and this is why I like the idea of the core, that from the core of our nature, we're corrupt. And therefore, from that core, the effects are felt throughout who we are. I, I think that's a much more valuable expression. Um, the um, end that this corruption of core that expresses itself in every part of who we are uh, is um, uh, inherited by us who are children of Adam and Eve. Um, the, um, what was true of the curse uh, delivered to our first parents uh, is true for us as their children. Um, now, um, let me pause for a minute. Does anyone want to comment or question about that idea of comprehensive um, uh, corruption? All right, not seeing anyone want to get to the floor. That they Can next. You, yeah. I, I have a question. Um, just at the very beginning, when you were starting. Um, under confessional foundations, you said in this age, we, and I wondered what you meant by that. I mean, it's just, it's from the very beginning of the world, isn't it? Um, what are you looking at? <laughs> somebody was at the door, but um, in any case. Uh, but, I thought I heard that. Too. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> uh, what I mean in this age is the age between uh paradise and the new heavens and the new earth so from from the creation of yeah, after the fall yes okay so just okay I just wanted to... all right thanks Thank Jen anyone else uh, yeah Cheryl can you hear me oh Cheryl? yeah Cheryl if you can speak no, I... if you can Speak up just a little, it would help because I want to be sure and get you on the recording. Okay. Is this any better? We thought we had fixed the problem. That, that, uh, that's a little better, yeah. Okay. Um, sorry about that. Uh, I was just wondering, it, it's um, making me think as well, and I don't know if comprehensive would refer to this, but I just know... Um, Several weeks back, in one of the lessons, it was really talking about how deep our sins go. Um, meaning, you know, that we have sins that does go back to Adam, that is inherent, you know, in our being human. Yes. That, too, we would say refers to the comprehensive nature of uh, I'm afraid I didn't quite follow. Cheryl, can you help me again there? I'm looking at Jeff to help me ask the question, and he's also staring at me like, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm confident you have some 
a wholesome thought there. It's just searching for a way out. So I'm just thinking of the term comprehensive. Uh-huh. And it's, it's triggering what we learned several weeks back um, in regard to um, the nature of our sin that I know from that night I came away just really in awe of how deep our sin goes. Yes. It, we carry sin that goes all the way back to Adam, which I knew already, but I guess just hadn't really thought how much that is a part of us and part of our confessing our sin. You know, it just goes so deep. Yes. And I just Yes, that's a great point. Absolutely. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right, at the bottom of page 14, um, they introduce a distinction that uh, the confession has brought forward between the corruption itself, the corruption we've just been talking about, and the fruit of that corruption between the heart that is inclined to sin and that inclination coming into action uh, in the world. Um, And the corruption itself, the confession says in 6.4, means that we are opposite to all good and wholly inclined all evil. Um, That's the corruption, and out of that corruption comes actual violations of God's law. Now, when we say opposite to all good, we mean all moral good, and we mean all moral good um, uh, that belongs to a creature whose goal is to glorify God and love others. It doesn't mean opposite to this worldly goods. It doesn't mean um, even moral goods that might be pursued for other this worldly reasons. Uh, So, for example, clearly courage is a good in this world. And courage, uh, it is quite possible for Um, those who are uh, originally corrupted in Adam, nevertheless to be courageous. Um, And it's worthy of admiration. But the failure uh, of the one that's uh, opposed to all good in this sense is that the courage is never for God's glory. It's never according to God's word. Uh, and it's never uh, for the um, uh, genuine care of others created in the image of God. Um, the uh, and that, that's a critically important point here: that um, natural virtues, this worldly goods, are fully within the power of a person who is. Uh, nevertheless opposed to all good because it's the good 
as God defines it and for his purposes that we find ourselves inclined to do evil. Uh, Thus, uh, the scripture can speak of the plowing of the wicked is an abomination to God. Um, Plowing is a good thing. The earth was created to be plowed and to bear fruit, and it's a good thing to raise crops and feed your family and so on. But it's an abomination to God because it's done, in fact, in rebellion against him, and thus it's evil. And that's what it means, wholly inclined to all evil. Uh, It it doesn't mean that... um, uh, Well, I think I've qualified that enough. Uh, But the point is, disinclination is the uh, transgression-producing engine in us. And thus, the distinction between original sin, that inward disposition, and actual sin. Um, And actual sin here means um, an act of the soul as opposed to a disposition or inclination, we could call it a potential, Um, it's an act of the soul, so these can be inward acts or outward acts, that is the the um, greed uh, captures my imagination, and so I think of a way to accumulate possessions. They're both acts of the soul, but both being acts, but the one is an inner act and the other is an outward act. Um, and the point here is this. Um, the confession is wanting us to see that original sin as a disposition, is truly sin. Um, Not just the acts, inward or outward, but the disposition itself. Um, Any question on that? This may be slightly off topic, but it's hard for me to wrap my head around Adam's sin because there was no disposition to sin like like I have, so it just is hard for me to understand how you would sin if you're not drawn to that in the first place. Uh, it's not just hard, Austin. <laughs> uh, that is the problem of problems. Um, our Confession of Faith um, uh, treats it in uh, a very uh, clever, but uh, um, by um, not addressing it. It says that Adam was created upright, but mutable. Um, Those are the facts, and so it's a perfectly accurate statement. But how he became changeable, that, that is, he was changeable, but how he changed it is not revealed to us in the scripture. And so there, we, we don't have uh, the resources. We know, we know our own self-consciousness and we have some sense of how we work, but we don't have a sense, and it's not revealed to us, of how a, a righteous but mutable creature functions. And absent 
that we have no categories uh, for solving the issue. Does that make sense? Yes, and would you say are angels in that category, or they've already been, I guess, divided? So, yeah, the the angels uh, apparently suffer God's curse individually, not according to their kind, and that curse is permanent in each case. Uh, those who uh, suffered his judgment and rebellion will remain so fixed in that disposition and those who uh, remained upright have the blessing of uh, being preserved in that state and that's our own expectation for ourselves that when we are with the Lord we will be permanently fixed in uh our Lord's righteousness uh, never to be abandoned to corruption again. Cheryl? Yeah, I wanted to add, uh, David, Um, you you said um, that our sinful nature becomes the engine for our transgression. I'm roughly quoting. Yes. Um, but the simple nature is a transgression also, is that correct? It is sin. Um, the, um, it, it, it is not the way our uh, disposition is supposed to be. It's not actual sin. It's original sin. It's the source of sin, and it is sinful for me to be that way. Yes, I think the word transgression typically means a, a, a violation of God's law by some act. Okay, that, that sounds right. I want to make sure I understood. Thank you. All right, thank you, Jeff. That's a good point to make. We want to be uh, clear on on these elements of the, the whole discussion. All right, um, so... This leads us then to uh, the discussion of concupiscence, a historic debate of long standing. Um, the um, oh, before we go on, let me just draw your attention to footnote twenty-four. Um, the first part of that is important. I, I summarized it to some degree, but they say it's important to note that act can be internal or external. Um, Sometimes we think of acts as only external, but in this context, the word act refers to internal acts and external acts, whereas the disposition is something that is a potential within us that comes into actuality, either internally or externally. Is that clear? All right. Um, so the historic dispute over concupiscence, um, the, uh, the word takes on a technical sense that it doesn't have in general when it's used in theology. It doesn't refer simply to desire, but it refers to disordered desire. That is, 
desire as corrupted uh, by the fall. Um, and uh, what's especially important to recognize here is that our experience of concupiscence, disordered desire, is that it is spontaneous in us, or to put it another way, as they speak of it, as unbidden by us. Um, it, it is it, it spontaneously comes out of us, and um, it's because that's our nature now as fallen. We don't decide to have disordered desire. It's the disordered desire that determines all our decidings. You see, it would be impossible to decide to have a certain disposition. The disposition is the thing that decidings come out of. That's a fairly critical point. Anyone want to, uh, in other words, the way they put it on, um, let's see, what page is this? Uh, the way they put it on page um, 15 near the bottom, uh, the... Um, uh, um, bottom of the next to the uh, nearly next to the last paragraph um, when the sin status of concupiscence was disputed the concern was this spontaneous pre-deliberate experience of desire before the will consciously assented or consented to it Rome took it that this uh, spontaneous, um, pre-deliberate desire was not sinful. The Reformed took it that this spontaneous, pre-deliberate desire was in fact sin. Uh, And that before the will ever consciously assented or consented to it. Um, so, um, consent in this context, um, is when we have a conscious uh, approval of a feeling that is spontaneously, uh, aroused in us. Um, so if I, I have the thought, uh, that if I lie, I can get out of a difficult situation. And when I assent to that and think, oh, good, what a relief, that's when it moves into active uh, engagement. Yes, again, prices. Sorry. Sorry, That's all right. There's a relationship between what you just described and this thought among the homosexual community that they were born this way. There is, Cheryl, but I want you to hold on to that thought because that's next week's discussion. Okay. <laughs> but you're, you're, you're tracking exactly with where they're going. Dave. Yes. This is just a brilliant part of this document, it seems, because since we're all born dead in trespass and sin, um, 
we've all experienced this. Yes. And it makes so much sense. Yes. Because there are many ways that we can make excuses for why we did something, why we thought something, and this is just fundamental to who we are. It's, yeah. it's an amazing statement, just had to say that. All right, very good, thank you, Jen. Um, so, um, the, uh, I think I, that's all that I'm going to say on this. Um, the point is repeated again at the very bottom of, or the, the next to the last paragraph, it's also stated very nicely. Concupiscence then was the experience of the corruption of our nature. It was the inclination to desire in disordered ways experienced as spontaneous feelings and not the consent or active cultivation of those feelings. Uh, and this is truly and properly sin according to uh, our confession of faith. Um, the footnote 27 notes that uh, this discussion goes as far back as Augustine, and I think we mentioned some time ago that Augustine wasn't uh, particularly sound on this point. Um, the, um, and it's worth n- noticing here with respect to disorder, um, it's... Uh, uh, the disorder in view is nicely spoken of in footnote 28. Uh, it could be a desire to do uh, a desire. It, it could be to desire what ought not to be desirable or to desire what should be desirable too little or too great an extent or Desire in the wrong context, or with the wrong purpose, or in the wrong way. You see how uh, comprehensive this point is. Uh, the disorder has all kinds of variations and varieties. Um, the, uh, but the crucial point is this last sentence in the footnote, that, that it, this is a moral disorder, and thus thinking of the word disorder, disorder uh, presumes an order, and what is the order in view here? Uh, And the order is the law of God, the order defined as the law of God. And so the disorder is um, um, desires that that violate in some way or another the law of God. Well, that's the general category of corruption. Um, anyone a thought or comment or question there? And just to be clear about Rome's view then of concupiscence, it's disordered desires, but it's not in and of itself sinful. You can't control your that's, desires. That's right. That's okay. correct. That's correct. Um, and, and Rome's happy to call it disordered, uh, but they're not willing to call it sin. Uh, The Reformed, and and I hope you're taking the time to look at some of the uh, scripture texts, um, uh, because the um, texts of scripture are very powerful on this point.
Um, if you look at, for example, um, uh, in, uh, for example, footnote 29, Proverbs 20, dash, uh, verse 9, who can say, I have made my heart pure and I am clean from my sin? Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Um, 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar and his word is not in us. Um, the um, And one of the most uh, powerful um, uh, is in Romans 7.18 and 8.7. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And in Romans 8.7, for the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. All right. Um, the um, we move on to the second part now. Corruption understood in relationship to regeneration, and um, they cite Confession of Faith six five here. This corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. Um, they're wanting to insist that life is uh, renewed, and yet that renewed life continues to suffer under the effects of the fall. And they want to sort out uh, the relationship between those two points. Um, and um, straight away they see that the confession says that um, uh, through Christ the corruption we're talking about, is pardoned and mortified. Now, pardoned is clear enough. This is the great doctrine of justification, the idea that we are counted righteous in God's sight by the imputation of Christ's righteousness uh, to our account. We ourselves are not righteous. We are unrighteous. But we, when we're justified, um, it is the righteousness of Christ that's counted to, for us that uh, dis, that uh, overcomes the curse that belongs to our corrupted nature. Um, so the pardon part is clear enough. Um, the This is contrasted on page 16, first full paragraph, to Rome's point of view um, that uh, Rome says that righteousness is infused unto us so that it is in us, it is our righteousness as opposed to uh, a righteousness that is imputed to us uh, the obedience and sacrifice of Christ. Um, but the other point is the harder point. What does it mean when we say that uh, this corruption is mortified? And we have to have a care here because we might 
take the word to mean more uh, than it uh, is intended. And here the committee nicely raises some questions. Um, this is there really no change in the life of the believer? Um, is he only forgiven but uh, doomed forever to be in sinful corruption and in slavery to it? And there, the answer is absolutely not, not doomed forever. Uh, there's a real change. And it's in the chapter on free will that we find uh, this language. Um, when God converts a sinner and translates him into a state of grace, he freeth him from his natural bondage under sin. And by his grace alone enables him to free, freely to will and to do that which is spiritual good. That's Westminster, Westminster Confession of Faith 9.4. Um, um, and yet, the qualification follows, because of remaining corruption, we don't do it perfectly, and not exclusively so. So there, there is real good that can be done, uh, but it's imperfect. Uh, so that the new uh, life we have really is life. It's a life that's ordered toward um, God and holiness. Um, and thus the process of sanctification, that the regenerate person having a new heart, the confession says, uh, the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. So remember the idea of mortified here. It means, uh, and, and the, uh, the idea of mortified and the idea of dominion being destroyed is the absolute ironclad, uh, always at work, never intermitted disposition to sin that belongs to a person corrupted by original sin. And when it talks about mortification, putting that to death, it means the absolute ironclad, non-intermitting element. Or when it talks about the, the dominion being destroyed, again, it is that absolute rule that no longer um, is at work. So that, um, in fact, for the regenerate person, as the confession puts it, they can be more and more brought to life and strengthened in saving graces to the practice of true holiness. This is real change and real progress in Christ by the Spirit of God. Um, and in fact, uh, in a, a lovely point at the on the last um, next to the last paragraph, down near the bottom. Um, they say, in fact, section two of the confession begins by saying, quote, this sanctification is throughout in the whole man. And they nicely draw our attention to this point. This language clearly echoes the description of the extent of our corruption. And that is good news indeed. Um, it is throughout in the whole man, just in the same way that our corruption was throughout and in the whole man. 
this now is overcoming that in us. Um, and yet, and it, but our experience is that it's imperfect in this life. And thus, we are in a continual and irreconcilable war against the remnants of that corruption. It means that our experience is such that we don't always feel like we're making headway. We don't feel like we're winning battles. Uh, The Confession notes that the remaining corruption may for a time much prevail. Um, It may seem like, they say, that we're not making progress, but are stuck or even regressing. But ultimately, the point is this. There's no doubt about the outcome of the battle. Uh, however much we may move backward or be stuck, the, the beautiful language is this. Although remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Jesus Christ, the part of us that's been brought to life in Christ overcomes and we will grow in grace. The Spirit's work ultimately cannot fail. They beautifully close that section. All right, any questions about that section? Yes, Cheryl or Jeff. There we go. Um, uh, in, in talking about Uh, yes, I think that would be fair enough to say that that's the seed of life. Um, it, that the life is, remember that new birth is not just organic life, um, life of the body, it's the life of the soul. And the life of the soul is to have God as chief end uh, and to glorify and enjoy him. Um, so yes, I think that there now is um, uh, a disposition that is ordered toward that proper ultimate goal. So we need a five-dollar word for that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. That that'll be all of our assignment. Everybody, try and come up with uh, a, a counterpart word um, for concupiscence. Maybe maybe there is one. The medievals were great for. Coining uh, Latin terms. <laughs> All right. Anything else on uh, uh, corruption and regeneration? All right. The last bit: uh, corruption and the goodness of our works. Uh, this is a very important section in my judgment, uh, and they nicely uh, resolve. Matters that often perplex Christians. Um, so we want to look at it. Um, the um, the we, we can do tr- 
true spiritual good, they insist, yet it's imperfect and marred. So then here's a quandary. How is it that these works can really be considered good? Um, because good for God means perfectly good. Um, that That's the only good that can count. Uh, and so isn't it by definition true that these are not good works? Um, and they cite Calvin in an interesting quotation uh, asserting that the standard is to love God with the whole heart, mind, and strength. And uh, even as regenerate, we don't do that. Um, and so this closing paragraph, I, I think, is really wonderful. They say, well, yeah, you can see why it may seem like a contradiction here. That the confession's understanding of the Christian life is self-contradictory. Um, in wanting to see that our works um, are good as they are wrought by the Spirit of God, but as they come from us in our remaining sin, they're defiled. And, and here's the phrase that's the killer, they cannot endure, endure the severity of God's judgment. That's what really seems to drive home the threat of this being self-contradictory. And they nicely remind us that the answer is found in the um, grand doctrine of justification and union with Christ. No, it's not contradictory. Why not? Well, they cite the Confession of Faith in a beautiful section in 16.6. They say, um, uh, talking about the remaining sin, referring to yet notwithstanding, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are accepted in him not as though they were wholly unblameable, but that God looking upon them in his Son is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, though imperfect. That's the resolution. It's because of Christ that they're good works. And if we go back to the idea of the core the core was utterly corrupted, we said, when we talked about corruption. But now our true core is not corrupted. Now our true core is ordered well toward the will of God. And when we're sincerely seeking to live out of that core, God is pleased to accept even our brokenness in good works because of Jesus. Um, so they concluded, as an extension of God's justifying grace to us in Christ, he is truly pleased with our sincere, though mixed efforts at good. I, uh, I've tried to frame a sentence that I thought captured this truth that is so precious in, in, uh, in a parallel fashion. 
So let me put it this way. In Christ, my sinful self is accepted as righteous in God's sight. So too, in Christ, my sincere sinful works are accepted as righteous in God's sight. Um, that That's the precious truth of how Christ is all in all to us and that we can rest uh, upon him alone for our salvation. For our justification, our person is accepted because of Christ and our works are accepted because of Christ. All right, let me pause there and um, see if you have questions, comments, reflections. Well, let me ask you all a question. Um, the uh, I mentioned that this to some degree is review. Did it seem uh, uh, superfluous to you, or did it actually help you get deeper into some of the thoughts that we've covered so that it was pro- profitable? I'm happy to hear uh, <laughs> yay or nay on this. I'd be interested in feedback from you. Uh, prices. <laughs> All right, wonderful. What's your question, Jeff? It's more of a comment. I just, uh, I love what you said, and I, I think that, um, that this is one of many, many uh, evidences of God's inspiration in Scripture that, you know, I think we know that the human inclination of how to solve this problem is to get partial credit. That God will give us partial credit. You know, I'm, I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. And the solution here isn't, strictly speaking, one of partial credit, certainly not for humanity, but even in Christ, it's not a matter of partial credit. Yes. It's a, uh, I don't know the right way to say it, but it's, in Christ, it's, it's full credit. Yes. Um, so we have this uh, sinful marring of, of our inclinations Great point. Great point, Jeff. Wait, um, can I also jump in? Yes, please do. Something that I'm thinking. I'm sorry we're talking so much tonight. No, no, no. Don't be, don't be sorry. I'd be so lonely here by myself. No one talks. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm thinking, too, about this idea. I mean, first, uh, as you were reading those kind of thoughts, I was just like, in my mind, in the image of being childlike and just our, you know, our need continuously and always for Christ in our um, relationship with God in dealing with sin because of how deep our sin goes and that God is only pleased because of us. And um, also though the idea of maturity in Christ and being a mature believer and it's kind of um, very, very, well, not kind of very, but it's very eye-opening. Um, I, I know people over time who will say, as a believer, well, I don't struggle with that. I've got that now, but what I need is. And I always have 
wondered about for myself personally, like, how can I ever really say, well, I've got that down. Right. Because I don't really know what will happen in, in the future and along the journey of, you know, our walk with God. Yes. I won't stumble again over something yes. that I have stumbled over before. And so I never could understand that. And I think this really um, clears up, too. I mean, just tips on it, decided that. Um, if I'm understanding the credit, the maturity in Christ is just knowing more and more and more how much we need Christ and God's Word. Yes. And, you know, that's really what it means to be important. Yeah. In Christ. I am the new Wonderful. Really not much more to it, I don't think, except, except that. But correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's a great point, Cheryl. Um, the, um, the, uh, we should grow, the more mature we are, the more profoundly dependent we are upon God and his wonderful gift to us in his son and that sense of dependence uh, and uh, self-abandonment um, is really what Christian maturity is all about. And the fruit of that is that we actually make real progress in sanctification in the meantime. Other thoughts, reflections? I have a thought, Dave. It's Molly. Yes, Molly. Um back when um, you were talking about um, it being a moral disorder, I just couldn't get over um, what to me was a, um, a glaring um, absence that the word was not used um, in a word that communicated the clinical disorder, and it almost, it's kind of choking me up because um, it, it, it is, it's about our corruption, it, it's, that's where it begins, it's the original sin, and um, so this whole discussion, you know, it's not, it's not clinical, it's not a clinical disorder. Right, right. I'm, I'm just so moved by that. Um, mm. that how truth just um, kind of the Reformed faith puts all the puzzle pieces together very neatly. Yeah, yeah, it's very powerful. Yes. And 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 so, and this is the uh, wonder of it. You have clear distinctions, statements of truth. And yet it's not just a theory. It matches up with our experience. We know within us the reality of these things that the words are describing. And so it's confirmed in us. Yes, thank you. All right. Any other thoughts or comments or questions? Dave, yes. um, just wanted to throw in 
the plug for Scudder again. <laughs> He's so amazing. Yes. Um, and we hear things in, at various times in our life. Ho- hold on, Jen. Maybe I should... Uh, Jenny's talking about Henry Scudder, a Puritan devotional manual called The Christian's Daily Walk. Right. And... Um, so the first time this hit me was reading Scudder and just um, he states what you just stated. And I remember thinking, I can't believe that, you know, that our sincerity um, is going to be counted. Um, that sincerity counts and that's so encouraging. And he contrast that to perfectionism mm. that that's not what we're that that's not our goal because we can't attain that goal it's only Christ who did was perfect yes he's bringing us to heaven and will perfect us yes absolutely great great testimony Dave, I, I thought that your discussion on the the beginning of tonight about the ability to do natural good, and you you even said this when you were commenting that it's it's a vital part of the overall understanding of Calvinism because apart from it, it seems like um, it makes the system very vulnerable to the charge that we don't believe there's any good in anything and and that just doesn't comport with any of our regular experience in life yes yes that's a good point paul that's a good point well for next week keep all of these ideas in mind because next week the uh, committee is going to lead us in an application of all the things we've wrestled with tonight to the question of human sexuality. And I think there we'll really see how fruitful uh, this is um, to help us in some tough places. So thank you all again for coming tonight. And uh, I will make sure I get the uh, my apologies again for not getting the um, email out earlier in the day, um, but I've now adjusted my calendar so that that'll be the first thing I see on every Wednesday that I've got to send that email out. So I hope to uh, not just be sincere, but actually accomplish it. (laughs) All right, let me pray for us. Our Father, how uh, deeply and sadly we know of original corruption in ourselves. We grieve for it, but we grieve not as those without hope because of the good news of the new birth that the Spirit comes and brings to life the dead and that new life burns brightly toward eternity and will never be extinguished And that new life bears fruit, just as the old concupiscence bore fruit in actual sin. So the new life bears 
fruit in real but imperfect good works. And the glory is that in Christ those works are accepted and that they bring our Father's good pleasure, they bring our Lord's commendation, and that we, in all of our imperfection, nonetheless seeking to serve the Lord, can be confident that one day we will hear from his lips, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.